So as Danny said, we're starting a new sermon series today, following some of the great characters and stories in Genesis and Exodus. But before we do that, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you into our hearts today. We know that your presence is with us at all times, but we actively invite you to speak to us today through your word. And may my words speak some of your truth. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Sorry, I've gone a bit wonky here. We haven't worn these green ones for a while. It's an ordinary time, but it's not going to be ordinary because this series, I, I really love going back to the Old Testament stories sometimes. They teach us such a lot about humanity. And of course, we are looking at them through a very different lens to those people who would have um, read them and heard them the first times. Today, our character is one of the major heavy hitters, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is the one who's commended in Hebrews as being a man of faith, and he's commended over and over in Hebrews. The one who left his home and his people in search of something that he was promised by God, something that he didn't really know what it was. The man from whom all Jews and Christians are spiritually, spiritually descended. He's our father in a spiritual way. I wonder if you have a good example of when you have been made welcome in someone's home. I know some of you here are very hospitable people, so I'm sure there must be some great examples and good stories here. Hospitality is defined as being friendly and welcoming and making people feel at home. In addition, I'd say that hospitality is about allowing people to be themselves. Take a few moments to think about this. One of my greatest examples of hospitality is my Auntie Fran. She's, um, she's a, a good lady. Uh, she's kind of a scary lady sometimes if you don't do what she tells you. But whenever a new person comes to her house, and this happens a lot... She'll say, the first thing she will do is welcome you with open arms, then she'll make you a drink of whatever you want, and she'll show you where all the cupboards are, and she'll say, right, next drink you make yourself. And it is your house when you go there. So um, if, if any of you are ever in Robertop Lane in Ingleton, I'm sure you could pop in. <laughs> Just don't tell her I told you to. Um, yeah, a great example of hospitality. She opens her house, literally opens her cupboards and her fridge to you. And her very large larder, full of things from Lidl that she bought a long time ago. <laughs> I'm sure they're fine. They're in tins. Um, hospitality is a big part of what we do here at St. Stephen's, of course. It's one of the main things in our mission statement. We want to make people feel welcome in our community, in our homes, in our small groups, in our church. Our story today is a great example of lavish hospitality. Abraham shows great hospitality to his guests. I'm going to suggest that we're called to be hospitable. 
I want to look at hospi hospitality in two, potentially even three different ways. Hospitality towards other people. Hospitality of God towards us. And hospitality that we have towards God. So I think there's a picture um, of Rublev's icon of the Trinity. Interesting icons, aren't they? They're, they're not like normal pictures. They're full of symbolism. Many say that it's based on this very story of the three visitors to Abraham. And there's a lot of stuff in there that, um, I mean, you can go as far into it as you want to. It's a really, really interesting picture. And we will come back to it just briefly, but that ha we'll have that in the background. In Abraham's culture, of course, hospitality was one of the ways that people were judged, and it still is in Middle, Middle Eastern cultures and many others. And my goodness, he was lavish with his hospitality with these three. He gave them a massive meal. Apparently, the amount of wheat stated there would have made bread for all of, of his household. It was a huge amount, ridiculous amount for three people, wasteful even, and a whole calf for three people. If they'd eaten that, they wouldn't have been able to move. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. It's crazy. Lavish hospitality. Perhaps Abraham knew that these three were special. These three just turn up and start making pronouncements about Abraham's reproductive life. Is that normal? Very odd, I think, and actually a bit rude. These are no ordinary people. They knew the name of Abraham's wife. We don't know if he'd already told them, but they seemed to know quite a lot about his situation. Maybe they'd heard about how lovely Sarah was. Her beauty had all, almost been Abraham's downfall, uh, that's another story. Sarah may have been very beautiful, but she was unable to have children. God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, and Sarah would be the mother of a great nation, specifically. But that didn't seem to have happened. And by all human ways of um, looking at these things, there's no way it could have happened. Abraham and Sarah had waited and waited and waited but nothing happened. So they did what sensible, organized people with resources do. They took matters into their own hands. They did what was normal practice in those days, and Sarah gave her servant, her, her, her slave, Hagar, to Abraham to be his concubine. And of course, Hagar got pregnant. And all sorts of jealousy and intrigue occur. And goodness knows what pain and sorrow have come from those actions. It's an incredibly unjust and unfair story, the story of what happens to Hagar and Ishmael. But again, that's another story. There's a BBC series at the moment based on Margaret's, Margaret Atwood's dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale. It's quite scary, actually, very, very good. It's a quite recognizable near future. And something has happened to the, to the environment to render most women infertile. Those women who are found to be able to carry healthy babies are hunted down and basically used as broodmares for um, rich and powerful people. Gosh, does this sound like anything I've just talked about? It, it is a wonderful TV series, although quite shocking. 
The most shocking thing to me is that the powerful ruling classes in this case, and the ideology is Bible-based. It's actually Margaret Atwood's idea of what a Bible-based society would look like, and it is not pretty. She obviously doesn't have a great um, opinion of what would happen if Christians were in control, if fundamentalist Christians were in control of the world. They've taken the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah in this world and decided that this is the way to solve their problems. They justify the horror they inflict upon people by saying that it's all in the Bible. Many horrendous human decisions have been justified in this way. Slavery, subjugation of women and people with disabilities, war. But we always have to interpret scripture as Christians through the lens of Jesus. Everything changed because of him. Because of him, God speaks to everybody through his spirit, not just your people like Abraham. Because of him, we are all chosen to be part of God's mission. Look at the way that Jesus chose all of those people to do his stuff for him in our gospel story. He chose his disciples to help him, and they were a motley crew. They were not perfect. All we have to do is ask, and Jesus will be with us to help and guide us. So, we've talked a little bit about how Abraham was hospitable. So we come to the second part. We have to be able to accept God's lavish hospitality towards us. Three strangers visit and just happen to know a lot of stuff about Abraham. Maybe it is the Trinity. This is an icon of the Holy Trinity, not just a picture. A window into something quite wonderful. A way to learn something more about God. God's mystery. And one of the things I want us to note about this picture is that there is space at the table. We have the person in gold, the person in red, the person in green, and there is a space right at the front here for us. We're being beckoned to sit down, you could possibly think. And God has such awesome things in store for us. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we can't even begin to know the love of God. God is infinitely above us. God is able to do anything. Okay, sure. We know that, don't we? God promises that he's infinitely able to do more than we can ever ask or imagine. Great. He promises that he will be with us always. Wonderful. God promises that Abraham is going to have descendants who number more than the stars in the sky. Awesome. However, sometimes it feels like God really isn't keeping his promises very well. I wonder if some of you have even recently prayed that friends would be healed from illness and it hasn't happened in the way you wanted it to. Perhaps you really felt like God was promising that he would do a miracle and he hasn't. We pray for justice and it doesn't seem to happen. Perhaps some of us have even prayed fervently that we could be parents and that hasn't happened. We hear that God loves us and then we see atrocities all around the globe. We see the horrors that happened at Grenfell Tower. 
We see parents devastated, communities destroyed, people unnecessarily killed. We see people angry and disappointed at each other and with God. How can we accept hospitality from a God who allows awful things like that to happen? How can we believe that God is a God of lavish hospitality and love when we are surrounded by what seems like evidence that he doesn't even exist or he can't be bothered? It's basically impossible to try and answer this question without sounding oversimplistic and patronizing. However, we need to have a go at trying to answer this question because it is the most often given reason for people not believing in God. How can there be a God when there is such suffering in the world? In my Bible reading scheme at the moment, and if anybody's reading along with the lectionary in the mornings, I've been reading through the book of Job. Yay! Always a cheery task. Job, of course, was a wealthy man who had everything taken from him. Most of the book is taken up with Job shouting at God and his friends, very cack-handedly trying to counsel him. They are pretty rubbish at it. Through the cacophony of his friends, Job is finally able to hear God's voice. And he acknowledges that basically God is God and he is not. Because we are allowed to be angry at God. In fact, it's good. God can take all we can dish out and more. In fact, expressing what we feel to God is pretty hospitable when you think about it. By doing this, we are being truly ourselves and we are allowing God to be God. Because we also have to be hospitable to God. God doesn't want a fatted calf or 48 loaves of bread. He wants us. Warts and all, anger and all, disappointment and all. We are to allow God to be God's self and us to be our true selves. That is the quest of our whole entire lives. Hospitality. Our hospitality to each other is a reflection of what we get from God. And we need to be willing to be hospitable to him. We need to open ourselves to God, allow God to speak to us. That sometimes requires silence. You may have noticed that in conversation. In order for the other person to speak, you have to stop speaking. We have a silent prayer group that meets here at 9.15 every Monday. And I would love it if you could join us. And I would also love it if you can't make that time, um, we, could, we could organize another time. It is hospitable to sit in comfortable silence with each other and with God. And we need to be hospitable to God, even when God is really annoying us, and when God doesn't seem to be doing God's job. We need to be able to accept that maybe we don't know what God's job is. Because we're followers of the guy who knew what it was to ask for something really important and to hear nothing. Jesus told his disciples to ask for their daily bread, for what they really needed, and we can only presume that that's what he did when he talked to his father. When he knew the end of his life was near, he asked that God take away the suffering. And God did nothing. Jesus still died horribly, unjustly. But we know 
that that story has a glorious ending. I am not beginning to say, and I do not presume to say, that the tragedies we experience and the tragedies those people in Kensington experienced are necessary or glorious in any way. No way. What I'm saying is that we have one big, huge prayer we can pray in every situation. And that prayer is, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come in Kensington. Thy kingdom come to bring friendship and not enmity. Thy kingdom come in the parish of Hazelmere. Thy kingdom come in safety legislation. Thy kingdom come in the lives of everyone who has lost a family member, loved one, friend, and yes. Thy kingdom come in the lives of those who were responsible for cutting the corners that precipitated this disaster. Thy kingdom come, Lord, in the disappointments that I face. It is the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the prayer of all of us who trust in God. It's a prayer that we can pray and we must pray over and over. It's a prayer of lavish hospitality towards God. And it is our prayer. In the days between Ascension and Pentecost, people around the globe were specifically praying this prayer. Thy kingdom come. And here in Hazelmere, we had a prayer room set up at the Methodist church and many of the local churches took part in it. Thank you for everybody who was involved. As I finish here, I ask you to watch this message from the Archbishop of Canterbury to all who were involved in this global wave of prayer. And I ask us all as individuals and as a church, what are we willing to do to be lavishly hospitable to God, others, and ourselves? Amen. People in 85 countries around the world, 85 countries, I can hardly believe it, have been praying, thy kingdom come. It's an extraordinary joining together of Christians all around the world to pray two prayers, thy kingdom come and come Holy Spirit. Uh, two prayers that are literally world changing. They are the most extraordinary prayers you can imagine. One of the reasons for that is that Jesus himself teaches us to pray them. And if he teaches us to pray them, it's because he wants them prayed, because he wants to see answers. So what an amazing thing that so many people have been involved. And it goes further than that, because we have to say, when we've prayed, well, what do we do now? How do we respond to the fact that when we pray, God changes the world and God changes us? Our wills are aligned with God. What we want is brought more in tune with what he wants. Uh, Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2 of his letter to them, continue to work out your faith with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. It's God who works in us. I I hear that and I think, that is the most extraordinary, remarkable, slightly frightening, but also amazingly overwhelming thing. That God who loves me so much is at work in me.
There's quite a lot of work to do, by the way, but he's doing it. So what do we do? Well, I want to suggest two things. First, we've prayed thy kingdom come. The kingdom is about the perception, the, the visible signs of the rule and reign of God in our world. We've prayed thy kingdom come. So what are we going to do for us to be part of the answer to that prayer in our families, in our communities, in our homes, in our nations, wherever it is? What are we going to do? Not so that people look at us and say, oh, that's very special, but so that they say, there is Christ's kingdom being seen. It could be anything, but it'll be about meeting need, about aligning our actions with the priorities and will of God. It's the most exciting thing, because when you do that, the most astonishing things happen. And secondly, we've prayed, come Holy Spirit, and one of the innumerable things that the Holy Spirit does is to warm people's hearts so that they are open to the love and the goodness and the knowledge of Jesus Christ that Jesus becomes real to them, that they know his salvation, that they know his plan and purpose for their life, that they're called and they hear the call. During this period between Ascension and Pentecost, people have been praying for a number of people, their friends, perhaps five people. What are you going to do in the most sensitive, generous, loving way, in a way that you would like to be treated that enables them to have an opportunity to hear about Jesus Christ. Could be any number of things. Simple word of witness, hospitality. It could be anything. Depends who they are, where they are. Be sensitive, be loving, be full of the grace that God is showing to you and to me. But do something. May God bless you as you change the world and in changing it, you are changed by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's just have a moment to reflect on what Claire has shared with us and about the, what we've just seen and just thinking about what it means to be hospitable to...